Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is Julie Knudsen with the podcast Training the Pointing Labrador, episode number 159. And today's is a day later than I normally like to do because I spent yesterday after I extracted myself uh, from a car that whose thermometer read 115 degrees in Portland, Oregon at a, at a seminar up there over the weekend and then got back uh, yesterday, so I wasn't able to to uh, get the podcast, but today I will. And of course, it's always a little bit easier to um, work on your subject material after a weekend with a bunch of people and a bunch of dogs. So I had a lot of fun. So this podcast is going to be off of some things that have happened it, it, prior in training and stuff, and then the interactions with everybody at the seminar. We're going to talk about. Uh, uh, about perspectives, yours and the dogs, and just because something really got brought home to me a lot at the at the seminar, and I wanted to talk about that. And of course, we'll have a G update, which is really there's not much of an update in a week. We're still working on. We're going to a pile now, and for her, that's a it's a big deal. I'm not sure why, and she'll do it, but she's very worried and not afraid, but just kind of taking it personal, and it's not in her wheelhouse of fun things to do, go back and forth a real short distance uh, to one side or the other uh, to repetitively pick up bumpers. She's a super gung-ho retriever, but but and a lot of super gung-ho retrievers are super gung-ho about popping down to a pile of bumpers and back and getting that real good response to go. Uh, and she's, she's not, she's in a little, I don't know, just kind of disinterested in that. She does it, but I cannot get that real spark to go repetitively there, but we're working on that. Her sister's real good. She's just a sparky little thing, but she, uh, gee is, I don't know whether she thinks taking it personal or whether I'm doing not the best thing. I'm not sure what, so we're just moving through that. We keep progressing, but I just wish it was more fun for both of us. And, uh, it's not, but oh, we'll get there. Maybe when we start big run into the back pile and stuff, it'll get better. And it's been uh, way too hot. We're not at 115, but we were at 107 one day the prior week. And so it's very warm. So the upland is a little bit difficult right now. It was difficult at our seminar. Uh, we weren't at 100, I don't think, while we were out there, but it was moving its way up quick. So not too much to report on that. Besides, right now at this stage, she's seven months, going to be eight here shortly. And I think that uh, that she's at the stage where she always points, but that, you know, that overriding, oh, I just really want to get it, especially because of all the boring stuff I'm doing. I want to go out of here and have fun. I have a dog that really kind of wants to go get that. So I'm probably, depending on how this power goes, going to get in there and just do a do a complete de-chase on her. Uh, and just see what kind of impact that has. So that's where we are on G. It's kind of the fuzzy middle ground as we're bumping through all the real technical, you know, hard stuff for dogs. And it's hot, so it's not a nice windy, breezy morning to go do upland. But what I want to talk about today, and I'm not going to address really any listener questions, except maybe within the scope of this discussion, but I want to talk about um, perspective. And this is actually important. I'm not just getting off into some academic, you know, aspect of looking at this because I had so many questions uh, this weekend. And I always have a lot of questions in my own training groups 
about, you know, what do you do when, and, and all these setups, what happens when you get a certain kind of setup? How do you, you know, do you train certain kind of setups? How do you get a dog where they'll, uh, understand this or that. And then they, they, everybody lists out what, you know, where the birds go or where the blind is and what all the little technical stuff is. And they want to know, I had one very specific question by an engineer, you know, so they're so hard to deal with, but <laughs> he, he had one about what do you do when you have this? And he explained in great detail where all the birds went and what happened. And I had to really, I had to really think because I was, I tend to be uh, thinking in the, the dog think anymore because I've been around so long um, that I'm just there most of the time. So I'm having to try to get out of the dog thing and into the people head. So I'm thinking about this, this setup the way that he was describing it because I don't do that. I don't think of it, you know, whatever the name is what, you know, they have names for this and that, and then, and then just all this stuff. So I was struggling to get myself over to a place mentally where I could answer his question. Do I set those kind of things up? Um, not, I don't go about setting up a such and such setup. Really? I, I never do that. And I've had so many questions about it. And I know, you know, probably the majority of trainers do. Oh yeah, I like to do a this or that, an inline or whatever, I, every whatever. And and I uh, I don't operate that way. And the reason I don't operate that way is because I don't. It to me that's kind of like surfing on the top of the water. You know, we're going to practice different things. Somebody else might put in front of us. So I want the dog to have you know done this. But I will tell you a setup in you know, wildlife area A is not even remotely the same necessarily as the similar setup in a other kind of a place that has other kind of cover, other kind of stuff going on, other kind of terrain, other kind of uh, environmental conditions. You may have the bird placement and all that stuff similarly, if you even can. Yeah, I guess you could in a flat field, not much else. But so you can have the same setup, but it's not in the same place. And there's a lot of different input there. And so I don't think for the dog, they're going to go, oh, I know what this is. Some might, <laughs> but anyway, they, I don't know that they do. So the question is, how do you teach a dog to do some little tight tacking inside, you know, really difficult thing? And because... That's how we look at all this stuff. So when we're all looking at various setups, even in the upland field, when we're looking at how dogs are supposed to do stuff in the upland field, how they're supposed to move through it and how they're supposed to run marks and what order they're supposed to pick them up with and that they're supposed to know sometimes you go right on this side of that, but on the other side of that, when you do this, that's all how we look at it. And that's how we intellectualize it. And that's how we communicate to each other about it. Oh man, we had a, we had an inline that was, oh, it was killer. And Serba's going, oh yeah, those the inlines. They can, and everyone's got their heads there. And I'm not too sure that the dog, especially young dogs, you know, when dogs have been around a long time and seen a lot of stuff, they don't get too rattled because they've seen a lot of stuff and they generally know how to figure it out. The little guys are like, whoa, that's different. And, you know, they, they just kind of, they're kind of all over the place. But it's very important. 
And in, in the question I was answering, how do you get them to look over here? Or how do you get them to tuck right in here and go behind something and not just blast through there and forget where you're going? So if you isolate that kind of thinking on the part of the dog now, now we're going to go over to the dog because you're over there with your hip pocket or you're in line or you're out of order, inverted, something or other. You've got all that on your mind and the dog is not thinking like that. The dog thinks, and I can't obviously tell you exactly what they think, but when they see birds go down or whatever you're throwing and they see something, they see a bird go down. And then if it's a multiple, they see another bird go down. I'm, I'm almost positive they don't think, oh my gosh, that's at me. And the other one's an angle back. I think, you know, some of the, the real seasoned guys, you know, they, they know they saw that it was an angle back and they go to an angle back area or they saw that it was something inverted and a little bit towards us. And so they go to that, the seasoned guys do. But you don't even want that. You want them to see where the bird went the first time. And you want to see them to see where the bird went the second time. And what you want in their heads when you're doing anything difficult or challenging, you want in their heads, one, that they saw the bird, they isolated the area of the fall to the best of their marking ability, and that if they saw more than one bird go down, they did that each time, very, very selectively and isolatedly, isolatedly. They're, they're not, they're just going, Oh, there's that one. However, they think about it. And then they see the other one and they think about it. That's what we need them to do. That's it in terms of the marks. That's what we need. So we don't want them to be understanding that this is a inline, this and that, or a hip pocket, this or that. We want them to see the first bird that went down and have a very high level of confidence that they know where it went and then have a very high level of confidence that they know where that other one went. And then if there's another and another that they knew where those went, that requires that a dog be very, very good at that on one bird first, one at a time. So they should be before you start setting up tricky kind of setups where there's a lot of factors to them and a lot of they're interrelated in some way, mom and pops. I hate mom and pops. I really hate them. Every now and then I train on them because you see them. I bet I don't like them <clears throat> because it's very hard to, they are so connected since they emanate from basically the same place. They are connected in such an intimate way that it makes it hard to do this simplicity thing, but still. I work on it. So they need to be able to do one very difficultly placed bird well. That's a skill and it takes time to develop. So if you know how to do bird placement and you can set up singles that are very, very challenging by themselves and your dog acquires the ability to figure those things out and to take all, they do, you know, they don't look out there and see what we do. One, they're way shorter down. And two, they're traveling out there at a way lower level with a different trajectory viewpoint than we would have. And then when they got out there, get out there, they tune on, turn on a different set of uh, sensory equipment than we have. So it's a very different thing. 
And one, they have to be able to see those things and think about it. And then they have to be able to believe that they can do this and they know where it is. So before trying any tricky, tricky stuff, um, it's very nice to know that your dog can figure out a challengingly placed bird by itself. And then once they're able to do that, that they have the confidence that they can do that. And there is a whole series of things that I learned from some of the old guys where you can teach a dog to be really good at that. You know, whether it's an angle back or an inverted thing or, you know, a short throw or a long throw or a flat throw where they can detect the difference of that. Not always can you, but they seem to be kind of magical about some of that stuff. There are a lot of ways that you work on that. And then when you can do it with one, and if in by one and short, long, medium, one direction, one another direction, different kind of terrain, all kinds of factors that go into that. I believe you have to have that stuff in place first. At least it's a lot easier on the handler, the trainer, and it's a lot easier on the dog. It takes time now. If you're in a hurry, none of, anything I apply does not work. If you're in a hurry, just does not. But you get that. And then when that becomes something that they are fairly adept at, okay, now you can begin to have them somewhat connect two set uh, two marks, you know, or some whatever series of marks where literally there's impact from one on their way to another. That's a whole new thing now. So it's very nice to train that by making sure your dog is killer good at the singles. And that's normally in these podcasts. or And I always say that. Just make sure they're real good at singles. It, it, there's a lot to being really good at a single mark when the bird is well-placed to be very challenging. Not tricky, not unfair, but very challenging. And people who set up marks for a long time know how to do that. And if you don't, then you're a little bit handicapped on <clears throat> being able to, to do this. But anyway, when you got one where they can take into account all kinds of things and be very good at that, then you begin to associate those things so that the factors of one inter, you know, intermix with the factors of the other and work slowly and carefully. Two singles, then or do the memory bird as a single, then come back and run the double. There's a lot of ways to introduce that. But that's not that's part of the way that you teach these guys that. The rest of the way that you teach these guys that is by your communication on the line. Assuming you have a dog that is a reasonably good marker and can count to two or three or four, <clears throat> whatever you're doing, assuming you have that, then where it all comes back to is the communication on the line. Because when you and your dog are standing up there, <clears throat> assuming that you work on somewhat of the nuances of where they're facing and how you communicate to them when they're sitting next to you, right? The direction they're facing is very meaningful or should be how you cue them something. <clears throat> I don't, I fully disagree. I've heard so many people pull them way to the right and then they'll go too far to the right, but then they'll wind it. So they won't, you know, I, I, I can't do the lion to the dog thing really. Cause if I pull one of my well-trained dogs to the right, they darn well better go to the right. So I, I can't do, that's not what I'm talking about. But if they're really being influenced to something leftish and they're at my left side and I just tap my, my thigh a little bit with my left hand, 
I, not enough to move them or anything else, but I'm just influencing them. Where do I get that? How do I develop that kind of influence? And again, we worked on that at the end of the, at the end of the seminar. The thing I have, the 10 point drill, some of you guys know what I'm talking about. It starts out very straightforward and easy and you move it closer together and move it further back and it becomes nothing but, it's almost not words, but merely your influence, influence of their body, influence of where their eyes are and influence of what they are thinking. And when you do drills and maybe some of you have some, and baseball diamond is not one of those. It's not, that's a very big, very, um, it's just a big thing that you do 45 degrees this way. All right. Now 30 degrees this way. I'm talking about inches. Really? I'm talking about 12 inches out at, at uh, 60, 70 feet. Um, I really am. And there, so when you do drills like that, where you and your dog develop a means to communicate that may have no words at all, it may be body position. It may be the bend of a knee. It may be the tap of a thigh. It may be the scuff of a shoe on the, on the dirt where you just communicate to that dog. I know you're thinking that one over there on the right, and I need you to look at the one just left of that at a, at a, just by their eyeballs. And that's very doable. This is a very doable thing. It doesn't, you don't do it in a week. You get over a period of a month or two, you get where you can, you can thread a needle with these guys and it's fun and it's a challenge and, and every mistake and everyone I've ever taught this drill to, every mistake is yours and it is. So when you send them to the second one on the left and there's a very specific order, but whenever you're doing a line and the second one on the left and they get the third one on the left, ah, rats. Okay. Dog made a mistake. It did not. It did not. Because at some point, either right when you sent it, it just decided, it, it said, mm, left, third on the left, and it went over there, and you sent it. And, and part of you was like, I knew he's going to, I, I just, as soon as I sent him, I knew he was going to do that. That's your fault. Those are the kind of things you want to eliminate and get away from while you are developing this communication so you can thread that needle out there on this real tough, hard setup that you're going to have in a, a, a trial or a test. Um, the other thing that happens is if, if I said everything on this, on these lining drills like this are your fault, if the dog, you know, you were sending them for the second one on the left and they went out and they went, ah, heck, I'm going to get the third one. That is, a uh, the dog telling you, I'm not really going to work hard to do what you want. I'm not either. I'm not taking you seriously, or you haven't shown me that you're taking this seriously, or you're not asking enough of me. You're not making me bear down. That's still your fault, all right? If they are out here going, ah, eh, whatever, I really like this one, then there's an issue in how they are responding to you that you need to fix, not by whooping on them. It's not that. They don't need punished. You need to find a way here to um, reel them in so they are really connected with you and really working to do what it is you want. Because if you want to go do that really hard setup, Whatever it is, I don't care what it is, tricky, dicky, hard type. If you want to be able to pull those, just, just fish those birds out of those spots everywhere, then you need to have that dog convinced when I pull you just a tiny touch over here to the right, you need to pull a tiny touch over here to the right. You can't establish that or have it work the first time while you're in an event. 
It's these drills where you do this stuff, where you set that up, where you teach them. I want you to respond to me when I want to pull you a little bit to the right. You pull to the right, even if it's just your focus or your eyeballs, nothing else. So the key to running more challenging, hard, big, hard things is obviously you have to have marks that are challenging and hard and all that stuff. But then none of that's going to matter if you and that dog haven't developed this relationship on the line where you can communicate to one another. Uh-uh, buddy. Just a little bit over to the right. Yeah, that's the spot where you can talk to him that way. And not only can you communicate, I want to just influence you a touch to the right here, but they believe now they must be influenced <laughs> and, but a little bit to the right. And so your basic fundamental boring work in the park, in the, out in the field back behind where you guys work on this kind of stuff, that is as important or more than how good of a marker your dog is or if they can count to three or whatever all that stuff is. That is it. And a lot of trainers that say, okay, today we're going to do a XGY setup. And everybody, oh, no, not that. Um, they're calling it that by name. You need to, before you can, they probably have done this preliminary work with their dog. They've established these kind of relationships. They've developed this kind of focus. They can influence and pull or push ever, uh, where imperceptibly, where if you were just standing there watching them, you wouldn't even know it was happening. They probably already have that. And so now they're just carrying it out on this setup that they've got. But what people coming in that aren't doing that all the time or don't even know about it, they don't have that. So they watch this trainer go, okay, we're doing an XYG setup here. And, and they, they want to do it. And they don't know that that guy is, has all the tools. He's done all the homework, all the preliminary stuff. He has every tool to communicate with his dog what he has to. And they don't. And so more often than not, that's the situation that you have. And that's why it's so difficult. So when you're advancing and getting up there, and I don't care whether it's blind stuff that you're talking about. I don't care if it's difficult marks and multiples and tricky, tricky stuff like that. When you're getting up to that level, you have to have a dog with the, the rank skills of marking, you know, and going pretty straight and giving it their best and all of that. You have to have all that. But when it starts to get kind of dicey in there, you need that little bit of real delicate and critical communication so you can thread little needles and do little things. And you don't develop that by just running those kind of marks. To a degree you do, but it's not as finessey as if you just work on that all by itself without the factors of wind and a bird being out there and running really hard and breathing really hard where you're just in their brain and in their eyes, and kind of in their heart, and in their ears, because they need to be listening to everything, a scuff on the foot should influence your dog a certain way, or that can if you'd like that. So my answer to those kind of things, um, you know, do you practice that? How do you do that kind of stuff? Is first and foremost, I like to set up really hard singles a lot, and then make sometimes them close enough that they're sort of related, and still expect the same performance on a single. I like to do that, but most of all, I like to have communication on the line that is beyond what anybody is, is aware that they're seeing. 
I don't just walk up and have them sit down straight, just look out and go. Sometimes, yes. But really, if there's something out there, I'm going to talk with them a little bit. And maybe not with words, not with words, but with the cues that we've developed in the hours that we've spent doing these drills that just look so dull. You know, if you're just watching them, it's like, oh, yeah, that's, oh, well, when are we going to go shoot some birds? That other stuff is what's really important to that. So perspective on running events or even difficult situations in hunting. Perspectives on that, what we think. We have names for the setups. We like to call them especially cool trainer stuff. You know, we have the cool trainer things and we that we're real comfortable there. And we've got the real high up. Our Visually, we're at five or six feet at least, our, our perspective. Um, we got peer pressure. I don't think dogs have that. And, and we've got, we know, we want to be the good dog at the training session. And we got all this stuff, none of which has anything to do with that dog carrying off a difficult set of marks to the best of their ability. But if you can throw off that other stuff and you have that language between the two of you, then you have a different game. Then you can go practice some of those. Hopefully not just nothing but that because you have to keep the dog's belief and confidence in themselves up that they're not always going to be tested, 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 but that we're going to do a lot of teaching, teaching, teaching. And then they always trust. So if you have that going and that takes a while, then you can do setups that other people, um, you know, will go, wow, that's really good. You must practice that. <laughs> Not really, but I practice a lot of stuff that's real important in that. Now I'm going to say something similar to that for, for people who um, are doing water things uh, with their dog. And I, I had this discussion with a couple people and I have this all the time, forever I've had this. You know, when you talk about the swim by and the thing where you develop, and the swim by is where you develop a communication about water with the dog. It isn't where you teach them, they, they, you know, all right, you have to run water blinds or you have to handle. Really, it's where you develop a communication that's very clear to them and what, what you want them to do in the water in different situations. It's not geometric. It's not 90 degrees, it's not overs, it's not that stuff. It's a get in, stay in, you know, look for water, stay in water. It's all of that kind of thing. So what I always hear on that line is that, oh, my dog loves the water. I don't have to make them get in. <laughs> well, the time they're, first time they're going to not want to get in the water is after you've driven 500 miles and paid $200 entry fee and the water blind is the last thing before the last series and it's skinny and the water's yucky and kind of smells bad and dog's tired. Then they're, you know, your dog that loves the water might just jump in a little and jump to the other side and get out and go, well, that stinks. I'm not going to get in there and then you're out. So I would, I know a lot of dogs love water. I've trained a lot of, I put a lot of dogs that adore the water through the swim by, thank goodness. Because just because they like water doesn't mean they'll do unnatural things in it. And technical water blinds and some of the marks that they put on their technical marks in the water, have them do things that a dog wouldn't naturally do. The weird angles, the diagonaling across something, the getting out on just a teeny tiny piece of land and getting right back in when there's this bunch of land right behind all that where they would normally get if they were hunting or just moving through the water. So... To have a dog pass tests and do things uh, that are not natural 
does require an understanding between the two of you when you go, no, 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 you've got to stay in the water. Don't get out, even though it makes total sense to you to get out right now. Don't do it and go over here and have them understand you told them to stay in the water. Not take an over or take an angle back, but you told them to stay in the water so that then they will literally stay in the water. So for everybody that has the hard-charging, water-loving dog, if you're going to do very much competition, uh, particularly where you would have to handle blinds or challenging marks and stuff, um, because your dog loves water, that's your perspective now, like, oh, heck yeah, get in everywhere. Um, from the dog's perspective, water needs to make sense. For any dog to run a water blind, for any dog to do a good, honest watermark, they need to understand what the expectation is and what the water is. And it is not what they would do naturally. And so they need to understand what it is that you want. You don't have to be super tricked out to finish the Master National or qualify for the National Open or anything. You don't have to be that tricked out or have them go that far or that much technical stuff. But you do need to find the way to communicate to them when there is water that I point you toward, you do need to get into that water. Even if you don't like the way it looks, <laughs> or even if there's just something lovely on both sides of it, you still have to get into this. And then even if the water, you don't like it, or it's got sticks and stuff or things underneath that you feel, down logs or something that are bothering you, you still need to stay in it. And then when I tell, tell you to stop, you have to just stop and wait and look at me. You know, and just tread water and wait, just not just auto cast and go, okay, if I'm not going this way, I'll go that way. You can't have that. You have to have a dog with some very, it's not a lot, but some fundamental understanding that, you know, I'm going to ask you to do some things in here that you wouldn't normally do. And I need you to do them. And I need you to do them without a collar on because we're in competition. And I need you to give me your best effort. The entire way, not two-thirds of the way, and then heck with this and out and, and round on land to whatever you're into the bird. That's another important thing. So because dogs love doing this stuff, what, whether it's water, land, whatever it is, it means they love doing it and they're going to do it the way that nature dictates. And tests are set up to test how well dogs will do things not the way nature dictates. So that's just the way this stuff is set up. And you may have seen a test that was very straightforward, swim straight across the pond, do something real easy and go, shoot, I could do this. And I could show you 25 tests I've run of the same level where it was anything but that. It was the most to the dog unnatural thing. So because it appears straightforward and easy to you, does it may mean it's that way to the dog and it may not. Because you're looking at the geometry of something, the distance of something. You're looking at, you know, going, okay, that's not so bad. And the dog is looking at it from, all right, what's the best way to negotiate all this stuff? And unless you've taught them, you don't make those decisions, I do. They're going to make the decisions. Or you're going to be fighting like heck with them all the way, all the way along trying to do that. So, two different perspectives. We all really need to understand this. I find myself having to remind myself of that. I have the people perspective. Everything is a visual from my five foot six inches and I know what they need to do. And I, and 
Yeah, I know the names of the setups or whatever. What the, okay, this is an angle entry, shoreline, whatever, water blind. I, I know all that stuff. Uh, but I need to understand what this is to my dog. And if I have a very beginning dog, I'm not going to do an angle entry shoreline. I'm going to do a channel blind. I'm going to move over a little bit because I, they aren't going to get that. And all I'm going to get out of them is a channel blind anyway. So I'm not going to be getting them in trouble uh, for doing a channel blind when that's all I've taught so far. They're just not going to get in trouble. Imagine what that does to them. So if if we could all be just a little more aware of what we bring into any training session we do with the dog and, and what we bring into what our goals and objectives are, and then what that dog, where they come from, down there at their 24 inches and perspective all the way out there. And what they would normally do naturally versus what it is we're going to ask them to do. Again, that's the purpose of all these tests. It isn't how would a dog get from here 400 yards out if they could do it any way they wanted. It is not as you fail right there. But if if you, the dog learns the game, and they do need to learn the game a little bit, even in the hunt test and even in the lower level stuff of the hunt test, they do need to go pretty directly and they do need to do certain things and go through the decoys, not get tangled up and have a hissy fit in them. Um, if you can kind of understand their perspective, it, well, not kind of, you should just flat out make that your goal every time. What is the dog seeing? What is the dog thinking? What are, what have I, uh, what have I given this dog so they can handle this? What tools, what armaments I have I given this guy so he knows what he's doing or she's doing? Or am I just hoping that the dog will see what I see and do what I think they should? That very often are the problems that we have. And when we get mad at our dog for not doing something, when we haven't prepared them, when we haven't given them what they need to be able to understand this and carry it out, it is not that darn dog. It is the training and preparation. So that's today's 33 minutes. Not too, not too, too bad. Um... I, I, I have to say for anybody that's still here at this point, I spent the uh, this last weekend with the Northwest Pointing Lab Club. What a phenomenal bunch of folks. And I don't say stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a, like a schmoozer, just not. Um, and I, re I was up there with them five years ago when they were, you know, getting rolling and all this stuff. And, and uh, you know, nobody, I don't think anybody had a four-time grandmaster, <clears throat> if even a grandmaster, other than a, you know, John Greer up there, who isn't a part of that club, but I don't know that there was anybody, and now they have like 11 of them, four times. I mean, these folks have figured stuff out, and they have pulled together uh, in a, and talk about a supportive bunch. I wouldn't dream to insult anyone. The whole rest of the crew would have, would have water ballooned me. They, they're real supportive, and they are doing extremely good dog work, and they help each other out. And this one gets the birds and this one finds the place. And I mean, it, it's really to be commended. That is a, f I wish that we had activities like that in other parts of the country where there's a lot of dogs. It always takes one person with a really big engine to just keep pulling and pulling. But that has just dramatically changed uh, the dogs up there and the people up there. And it's really good stuff. And I encourage, you know, other people to follow their deal. They've got this figured out. A bunch of really positive. There was nobody whining about anything. That's, I just never anywhere with dog people where somebody's not mad at somebody else. But that bunch of folks is just really positive and working hard. And they're all getting in their next dog. And everybody's working on the next stuff. And it was, 
it was invigorating to see everyone having such fun and believing in their dogs so much and doing all that. And I, I would wish for other parts of the country to be able to experience that. But you got to have some good-hearted, uh, willing to do some thankless work kind of folks. And they have that up there. I hope those people get on, uh, more of them get on the APLA board. It would be a great thing to have some real positive, non-gripey, let's get some new things done and pull together and do it as a team. Uh, that would be really awesome. So my, my hat's off to those folks. I saw every single dog pointed, every single dog hunted, every single dog retrieved. I mean, it was just beautiful. So great people, great place that the temperature, a little warm. You know, I, th I thought I was maybe in Tucson, but I was in Oregon and uh, it was a great weekend. I had a lot of fun and I hope that some of the things I'm talking about on perspective, you give some thought to because it's whether you do or not, don't, that's a thing between you and your dog and your success on some of these more challenging things. And you can make it a little easier on both of you if you kind of think it through on a little bit more fundamental level. So I'll leave you with that. Hope everybody is having a, not a killer summer, such an odd continuously odd weather i hope you stay cool and i hope you get to train early in the mornings and g and i will be back well, hopefully with more interesting things very soon